invite your attention to um, the book of Philippians, which, if you don't know exactly where that is, if you, if you go in the New Testament and you, you find Corinthians, just keep going to the right. Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So, we, uh, uh, I invite your attention to the second chapter of the book of Philippians. We've already had heard one verse quoted in Brother Chuck's prayer, and then uh, intimation of the next one, so we want to share that with you. So let's start reading just from verses 12 through verse 16, Philippians chapter 2. And as we do, I'll ask you this question, what does it mean to shine in this world in which we live? How do we shine? Where do we shine? What does it mean exactly for a Christian to present himself a light to this world? Paul said, Wherefore, verse 12, My beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. Verse 15, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And verse 16, I'll close with this one. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. I think the key verse that I want to hang on to... uh, generally, is verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless. There's two adjectives right there that are descriptive of the sons of God. They're harmless, they're blameless. That they may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. And then the setting for our position as sons of God in this world, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Those two items there... Uh, these two words, crooked and perverse nation, among whom, and then here this aspect, ye shine. What does it mean to shine as lights in the world? Uh, it's been a while since I've been able to dig into this scripture. In fact, I remember preaching on it many years ago at Tidewater in Virginia, probably 15 years ago. But I've always thought it to be something very precious. One of my favorite little um, hobbies is to uh, keep a tab on Old Testament scriptures that are found in the New Testament. In fact, there's a few lists on the internet that uh, you know people like to pride themselves in finding Old Testament jewels within the New Testament epistles and and uh, gospels and things like this. Well, here's one that I found that a blue list it didn't have. So I was kind of excited. Our text this morning in verse 15 is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32. Now our translators figured that out because you can see it in the center column reference. But sometimes there's intimations regarding an Old Testament text that you don't find in the New Testament. But they're, they're there. It's amazing. It's amazing just how many Old Testament texts shine in our New Testament life. Well, I think one of the things that we are amazed at this book is the historical setting. So in the first place, I want to draw some of our attention to the the background to Paul's writing this epistle and maybe his memory in regards to how this this church was formed. After all, it was a church, if you recall, uh, one of the first churches of Europe there on the northern span of Macedonia, up high, you know. And so it's very instrumental if we look back in our history, in our setting. Here we find the, Paul the Apostle writing to the church of the Philippi while he's imprisoned, and he remembers them, especially not only for their obedience, of course, in his absence, but much more here, uh, excuse me, in his presence, but much more here in his absence, that they would be obedient sons of God, blameless and harmless, uh, amidst a very crooked and perverse uh, generation. They would shine forth as sons of God. How important that is. He was reminded also of their generosity. Uh, The Philippian church, as we will find, was a very prosperous church. 
Uh, they, were, they were made up of men and women who were very generous because God were, was generous to them. And they, in turn, were able to give uh, to the needs of the Apostle Paul. Uh, further on in this epistle, you will find uh, the Apostle Paul uh, speaking to that effect. And so the Philippian church was a church unlike the Corinthians in the sense that they were very obedient, uh, they were giving, and they were, uh, receiving, they were receptors of the gospel. Uh, Paul the Apostle uh, frequented them on several occasions, and they were his friends, very close friends. Uh, in, in terms of our brief historical aspect to the, the scenes behind the Philippian church, we might want to turn to Acts chapter 16 and just make note of a little bit regarding the, uh, this background. If you notice with me, in, um, uh, of course you remember uh, some of the things, Brother Bloyd also makes mention of this on you know, frequent uh, occasions because of, his, uh, of, 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 of the uh, way in which he came here at Mount Carmel, referring to a vision, of course, that Paul had in the night there stood a man, quote-unquote, a man, verse 9, of Macedonia and prayed him, come over into Macedonia and help us. And, of course, that was the uh, scripture that was impressed upon Brother Stephen uh, over 25 years ago when he came here from Texas to pastor the church. But it also here is a very important uh, vision in which Paul received because there, while he was prevented of going to uh, Asia, the Lord opened a door for him to go into Europe in terms of preaching the gospel. There's a purpose of the gospel, and we're going to find that out here in the very beginnings uh, in, in, uh, of, the, of this church. If, if you notice verse 14, uh, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, notice this, heard us whose heart the Lord opened. And so here we have women that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Here we have women who were by occasion on the Sabbath day went out of the city, verse 15, by the riverside. This lets us know that there were some circumstances that prevented them from meeting in the city in a synagogue. Now obviously synagogues were very popular throughout Asia Minor as you got closer to Jerusalem. Here in Europe maybe there was some reasons why they didn't have a synagogue in Philippi that it was their occasion to go out to the riverside and meet, where women would meet together and pray. And Paul went out on a certain Sabbath to talk to those who were meeting by the riverside. Maybe, I think, in a sense, if you look close into these texts, you'll see a little bit of anti-Semitism. I don't know. It was a Roman colony situated right on the Ignatia Way, which is a popular road all the way from what, Rome to Istanbul, today's Istanbul, so it was a long path trodden uh, by uh, travelers, and Philippi was popular because of that trade route, a lot of money, exchanged hands, and it was a city given to merchandise and commerce. It was a bright spot among the Roman colonies. It's named after, uh, uh, what, uh, Alexander the Great's brother, or uh, Philip, so Philippi, was it his brother? A father. So it had a lot of history to in terms of uh, you know what was going on in that particular period of time. One of the things in addition here that we see in the early happenstance was not only uh, this woman of Thyatira and the women that were also with her. You notice she had attended to the things which were spoken of the Apostle Paul and were and excuse me and was converted and uh, was baptized and her household and she and she was very uh, providentially caring for the apostle by providing a place in her house for their for them to abide so here we have Paul and Silas among others but in addition to this uh, certain woman named Lydia there was a young girl a slave girl a damsel the bible says who was under the spirit of a divination. In other words, she was possessed by a devil. And it seems to be very popular in that particular known world among the pagans that um, uh, the demons would possess uh, people uh, for a particular purpose. In this case, it was a spirit whereby she was, verse 16, a soothsayer. Or in other words, she was a fortune teller. 
And she read palms, if you will. She was a psychic. And uh, people went to them to know what the future held. This is the spirit of demons, okay? This is, uh, whenever you see this now broadcasted, it's very prominent. People seek out these, uh, these spirit of divinations. This is a spirit of demon and demonic activity. Uh, the, uh, and we are warned against it uh, throughout the scriptures. But anyway, with this little girl here was a slave to others who used her for the purpose of providing money. In other words, uh, follow the money trail. And they were merchand- making merchandise of her because they literally used her to tell fortunes uh, uh, by which they themselves would make money. And, uh, you know, the, the, the gospel oftentimes obstructs, obstructs the pathway of this world. The gospel truth, the truth of God, gets in the face, flies in the face of the normal everyday activities of the spiritual realm. When you think about the spiritual realm, you're thinking about not just God's kingdom. You know, revive us again by God's spirit. The kingdom of God, the spirit of Christ. But there's also an alternative. And that is the spirit of demons. The spiritual world in which we live. Everything that we see is not altogether what's fully, substantially real. The things that we do not see are the things that are most real and most lasting. The demonic world is a real world. The gospel has a way of obstructing that spiritual realm. The truth of God stands in the way, if you will. And that's exactly what happens here. Paul was so put out with this particular demon, possessed young girl, that eventually he turns to her, verse 18, being grieved, and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out at the same hour. And when her masters saw that, the hope of their gains was gone. They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace. And so what we have here in Philippi is the Apostle Paul preaching first at the riverside and how wonderful and peaceful and tranquil the purpose of the gospel has gone forth and created, if you will, or constituted a church there, the first in Europe, but not long before you see the division that that is caused by the gospel of peace as it draws upon the normalcy of this dark and perverted world. It disrupts the normal activity of this world. And so they take Paul and Silas into the court. That's literally what the center column reference says in in regards to the marketplace. And they brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. That's where I get the intimation that it's possible they met on the riverside because of a little bit of anti-Semitism, that they were Romans, that they were not going to be subject to the customs of the Jews, the ordinance of the Jews, or the laws of the Hebrews. And so they were forced, if you will, to retreat to the riverside and there talk about the things of God. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is that not only Lydia and, and the women that knew her and her family became members of this early church, but there was something else going on. And that is, here's this little slave girl now relieved from her oppression, delivered from her possession, and now made whole by the power that was invested in the Apostle Paul. But watch what happens, because now they're going to be thrown into a jail where there's Gentiles like Silas, excuse me, like the... Uh, the jailkeeper, verse 23, and when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. And so the jailer now has been charged by the magistrates to keep them. Now, for whatever purpose, I don't know, but they're going to keep them safe, keep them locked up. That's your job. That was a job of a Roman centurion. That was a lot of commitment. That was a lot of responsibility. They did not handle their job lightly. And so into this prison they, they went. And who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison. So way down deep dark, locked up, 
their feet fast in stocks. And then what we find in the middle of this terrible situation that Paul and Silas find themselves, that they're at midnight singing and praying unto God. How about that? That the gospel of God's redeeming grace is not thwarted by the evil intentions of man. Lock them up is not good enough to suppress the Spirit of God. Lock them up is not going to restrain the Spirit of the living God. I was reminded by a dear friend of a great verse in Psalms 47, 8 this, this week, that God reigneth over the heathen. How does he reign? It doesn't look good. They're in prison. They're locked up. They're fast. Feet fettered. It's impossible. God reigns. How does he reign? Grace reigns. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And they're in the inner sanctuary, if you will, in this holy place, in a dark dungeon, Paul and Silas singing praises unto God. And that, my friends, was accompanied by the listening of other prisoners. You know what's amazing? What came about is God reigns over the heathen world. An earthquake takes place. And it shakes the prison so much that the doors are opened. And not a one of the prisoners escapes. They're all there. Isn't that beautiful? Very contrary to the prisoners of today. Why, you unlock that prison cell and they're gone. But not under God's redeeming grace. You could say it's restraining grace. A grace that keeps down the desires and the intents of a sinful heart. God changed people by His grace. You see, there's a lot going on here that we can just kind of add conjecture. The fact that these prisoners didn't escape tells me that they were hanging on to something that they felt in their hearts was far greater than they ever heard before in their life. That they were rejoicing along with Paul and Silas. That whatever they were saying in terms of the gospel message, they took heed to. And they were part and parcel. This church is growing. I'd say that God is adding to the church daily such as should be saved. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And so here's the foundation, if you will, of the church here at Philippi. Lots going on there. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Well, we go back to our text in Philippians chapter 2 and we find out what is happening behind the scenes real quickly as we reflect to what Brother Chuck prayed. He said, God is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So when we immediately think about that verse, we think about the sovereignty of God in the heart of a dead sinner, awakening him to life by the new birth of the Spirit, making a hardened, core criminal, rebellious against God, into a soft, receiving child of grace that loves, that's tender-hearted. You know, that loves God and loves his neighbor as himself. How beautiful is that? So when we think about God, verse 13, which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, we think immediately of the great sovereignty of God. But I want us to think additionally to that, that there's a tremendous contrast here being portrayed between that which is seen in this brief historical sketch and that which is evident in the world. And for this experience, I go back again to the book of Acts, chapter 17, because there we find Paul, who was taken, if you, who was brought to a Mars Hill. Because on Mars Hill, we're going to see the world. You know, when we think about the world, we think about not just secularism, but religion. Religion. We think the Spirit of God is dominant. Among the children of God. But we also see the spirit of demons dominant among the children of darkness. We see among the children of light, worship, the true and the living God, turning from idols to serve the true and the living God as we heard about already. But we also see not only in and among the sons of God worshiping the living and true creator, we also see among the sons of Adam of religion. Pursuing secular humanism. Um, Honoring, if you will, the work of man. Honoring maybe 
in some distorted way, the universe, if you will. Creation. Natural creation. You know? And so instead of honoring the God of creation, they're honoring creation itself. So what you see here in Acts 17 is really a little bit of a pantheistic monoism. And that's just a fancy word or phrase that conveys the idea that pantheism is a worship of the natural realm. You know, they see God not so much as we see Him in the person of Christ, but they see Him as in everything. In the stones, in the trees, in the rocks, in the mountains, in the sky, everywhere. Sounds pretty good. You see how... Very close. You know, falsehood always runs along the lines of truth. So much so that it can deceive the hearts of the simple. Because there's a lot of people today... I mean, I, it wasn't long ago when I was in a place of worship. And uh, all I was doing is getting a cup of coffee. But everybody was in their Sunday best. There was an older woman here with a great big browns jersey. And there was another guy over here with a red skin jersey. I mean, they were out to worship on Sunday, one day a week, giving their total to their favorite team that was going to gather around millions to, you know, uh, you know, in some sporting event. That's what I call worship, brothers and sisters. That's a spirit of worship. But in addition to that, there's a religious tone to it. And we can find that camped out in all kinds of isms today, but this in particular is one that centers around a monoism, which is a, a singleness, if you will. The whole earth is one. All religions are equal, whether it's Muhammad, Islam, whether it's Judaism or some other Hinduism or Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, or whether it's even Christianity. Just bring them all together in one big conglomerate. And it's and, and one one single everybody's the same, no difference. You see how it is, and so that is a basic monoistic um, pantheism, which comes right out of the Eastern Orient, right over there where we find ourselves. This is what's going on, and so the gospel truth has a way of interrupting all this ism stuff, and that's what we find on Mars Hill. When the Apostle Paul, remember what I'm talking about, is God's working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure? You see, in, uh, in this pantheistic monoism of which we speak, there is no personal relationship with God. I mean, they're hugging trees and they're highlighting the created, uh, the creation itself, but they don't see God in any of it. Do they? And so here we have uh, the Apostle Paul being brought to Mars Hill, and he's stupefied by the superstition. This sup- this super what is it? This superstition. Stupefied by superstition. That's what the phrase I wanted. On Mars Hill, I perceive in all things, verse twenty-two, that you're too superstitious. And 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 then he preaches the gospel. He said, you know, the God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And so up to that point, I think even the secularist, religionist, monotheistic, pantheist, whatever else you want to throw into that group would say, Amen. We, he gives to all. Breath and all things. But he's still using a personal pronoun. The Lord. He. The Lord of heaven and earth. You see. This is remarkably different than what they're used to hearing. And uh, here's another proof. Another proof that the culture in which they live wasn't filled with a Greek version of the Old Testament. Which we today call the Septuagint. Okay. These pagans were ignorant of Old Testament understanding of God. And in the Old Testament understanding of God, you read about this anthropomorphic language that God, the creator of the universe, has eyes, he sees. He's got ears, he can hear. He's got a nose, he can smell. He's got feet, he can walk. He's got hands. You see all this particular kind of language that is conveying to its hearers that God is personally 
involved with them. That's what it refers to when we say that God is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. A God that works, involves with you. He's not some distant ism on a piece of paper that God loves you. He, he, he's with you. I am their God and he and they are my people. You see, there's a unity there, which you don't find in paganism. You don't find that in pantheistic monoism. And so Paul the Apostle goes on. He said, he's made us one blood of all nations, men, for to dwell on the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord, notice this, if happily, or if happily, they might feel after him. God's given them hearts that they might seek him. That they might be sensitive toward him. These are the awakened sons of God by God's spirit. Who now have a heart of sensitivity toward the things of God. He says he's everywhere. That they might feel after him and find him. Though he be not far from every, every, every one of us. For in him we live. Notice the contrast. And move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. So this is a different picture, isn't it? That human beings literally are made in the image of God. That we, who also have parents, God also is a parent, if you will. A spiritual parent. And men and women aren't just part of creation, all equal in some conglomeration of things created. No. Men and women, our offspring, if you will, were made in the image of God. We're intelligent beings. God made us uniquely different than the rest of creation. What happens today? What are you seeing today? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees who questioned him regarding marriage? He said, have you not read that God made a male and female? What is he talking about? He's talking about God's creation in creating Offspring, male and female. What does the world come along and do? They come along and they make that one, the singleness of the world. They combine things. And so it's very subtle, but it's very true that this is what their, their aim is. Okay, anyway, so back to our text in Philippians chapter 2. We see that God is working in us. In contrast to what goes on in a God of this world that is way out there. That there's no feelings. That there's no relationship. Thank God that you can go to your prayer closet. And you can bow down your head. And you can ask somehow the God of all the universe to hear your little prayer. That's what it boils down to, doesn't it? Well, how does God work out His will in our lives? How is it that we are working out that which God put in? I like that word work, don't you? We work it out. In other words, it doesn't come easy. You know, everything that is good in life comes through hard work, doesn't it? Somebody who wants to be an actor or an actress, what do they have to do? They have to work hard, memorizing their lines, you know, sharing the right moves in front of the camera. What's that take? Effort. What happens when you see somebody trying to act that hasn't put any work into it? Pretty obvious that they shouldn't be in front of the camera, right? It's the same thing here for Christians. Christians are to shine as lights in the world. How do we do it? Well, we're going to work out that which God has put in. It doesn't come naturally. You're not going to do it laying in bed. You've got to get up. You've got to exercise. Your faith has to be exercised. How is it that God can revive His people? It's through exercising the faith that He has given you. Reading the Bible. Studying. Praying. Meditating on His Bible. There's no way you can be a tree planted by rivers of living water and grow fruit if that tree is not planted by water. Where that water is nourished by the roots. Well, you're likened to a tree. And you're to be planted You know how I know that? Because I know what it's like to be a crusty old, dull person, Christian, 
who doesn't read and study his Bible. And I can feel that the fruit thereof is lacking. There's no fruit. And if you can see it, it's worthless. But God loves fruit in his people. He honors his people uh, with fruit when they meditate upon his word. Well, one of the things we work out is first found in the negative. Verse 14, we do all things without, without murmuring or disputing. Now, that seems to be a very common, ordinary trait of natural man. It's not something that we really have to learn. It's something that we're kind of born with, our murmuring. In other words, we can get upset. Really, the idea here is our murmuring toward God. He said in verse 15 that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. Now, I, I really do think, obviously, there's an import here that regards the outward man. You know, we're to be blameless. For instance, a minister is not to have anything that you can hang on to him in sense of a mark that would prevent him from being a minister. He's, in that sense, to be blameless in a public way. He's to be accepted in a public way. But I think here the, the word blameless really denotes this outward righteousness before God. And uh, this harmlessness or this inward uh, innocence, if you will, before God. God sees the heart. He knows our intentions of our heart. Um, that's what David prayed. David prayed, even though he was a great sinner, he prayed that God would see the integrity of his heart. He was a man after God's own heart. In his heart, he knew while he was a sinner outwardly and before a man, he was blameful. Yet he prayed that God would see his heart, see my heart. God, you know the integrity of my heart. And that's what he pinned his hope on back there in the Psalms. But anyway, the idea here really goes back to the idea we find in Deuteronomy 32. And I'm going to go back there real quick because it helps us understand that text in terms of what is being said here. That, he's, that, it, that, it, that it's in serving in terms of our relationship before God. This, this murmuring. In Psalms 30, excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, let's look at verse 5. They have corrupted themselves... Who's he talking about? He's talking about the children of Israel. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. And so the scripture there that Paul is using is right out of Deuteronomy. He said basically the way in which you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is basically in doing this you're defining who you are before God. Now, secondly, before men, obviously, and also for yourself as well, there's a way in which we can share that as, in, in terms of uh, this idea of being blameless. But he's basically saying here in Deuteronomy that these people who I brought out of Egypt, that I fed and took care of through the wilderness, that I have brought out with my own hand, have corrupted themselves. And how'd they do that? With a stiff neck. By murmuring, complaining, I want the garlic of Egypt, I want the onions, I want all that good food I had in Egypt, I don't want this milk and honey that you promised me, I don't want this manna, I don't want none of this stuff, I want what's mine by nature. That's what they were saying, that I don't want to be fed by God. That's what they were saying. You see, what we got to sift, because you might say, well, what's wrong with manna? It took care of all their needs. You know what the problem is? That they didn't do it for themselves. God's people are a people that recognize that He gets all the credit for everything. Even Jacob recognized that. He brought me through this waste hallowing wilderness. He didn't do it himself. God did it. God provided for him. And that's what basically he is saying here. These people... Oh God, something. Notice verse 6. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people? In other words, what he's saying is, that's an old English word that basically he's saying, is this the way you repay me? Is this the way you repay me? By murmuring? By disputing? And so here we find in this great chapter all the ways in which they corrupted themselves. He said, but Jeshurun waxed fat. And that's a poetic way of naming the children of Israel. 
That's another name for him. They waxed fat. They were on milk and they had verse 14, butter, milk, the fat of lambs. I mean, they were sitting pretty good. And basically, God required them one thing. Don't be like the rest of the strangers and your neighbors. I want you to be different than the world. So I called you out of darkness, translated in you into the kingdom of God's marvelous son. You're not to bear the spot of the world. You are my children. But what it, what it, what it said in the same verse, it says, But Jeshuan waxed fat and kicked and kicked. That little phrase denotes the fact that they were a rebellious people against God. And so on and so forth. A lot there in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 32. Very descriptive of the people of God who bore contrast to the Almighty. Well, they worked it out by not being murmuring or uh, disputing, disputings. I like that word because it conveys the idea of argumentation with God. Always angry with God, in this sense. I know you could probably extend that meaning into the area of the isms of the world because the thing about religions of the world, there's, there's a multiple amount. They're not cohesive. There's enormous amount of isms. They're like the doctrines, plural of devils. They never do work together. And there's many disputations. There's no harmony. There's no peace. And what does Paul say in contrast to that in regards to Christianity? That we endeavor to keep the unity of peace, don't we? Or the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're harmonious. Things go together with God. Isn't that neat? And so it's very... It's contrasted with the things of this world. But I want you to notice here these two little words in terms of uh, describing the world in which they're to shine as lights. And that is they're crooked and perverse. They're crooked and perverse. Those two same words come right out of that chapter, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5. They are crooked and perverse. What does that mean? I think crooked means that they're untoward or they're out of shape. They're bent out of shape. Just like if you look at something crooked. I was riding on Route 97 just this Friday. And I pass a house in Glenwood. And it's literally, it's an old house. And it looks like it's got logs, but it's not a log cabin. But there's a unique feature to this house. And it's lived in. And it's crooked. It's actually, it's like leaning. Like the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. It's leaning. What happened? Well, I don't know. Maybe the foundation gave way like the Tower of Pisa. But in either case, this house is out of shape. It's off kilter. It's not straight. It's crooked. And I know the floors are crooked just by looking at it. And I don't know how the people do it. I thought maybe Howard County would come by and slap, and slap a, 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 a condemnation sign on it. You know, house is condemned. But... Maybe they're grandfathered in or something. But anyway, it's a crooked house. And I can't imagine living in a crooked house. But that's exactly what we're doing. We're living in a world that's very crooked. Paul says, with this definition, very descriptive of the world, it's crooked. You know, it's out of shape. And I've made mention of the fact that we are made in the image of God. And somebody might say... Or deduce from that, yeah, you're quoting something prior to Adam's fall. We were all made in the image of God, upright. Yes, we were made upright, but man sought out many inventions, did he not? And sin was one of those inventions. And what happened? He became crooked, if you will. But he still has the appearance, excuse me, the appearance of that image, however defaced. And you can define it as totally depraved, but he still carries those marks. That's very important because people might think that being totally depraved, that you bear no image at all of the Father. But you do because when Noah got off the ark over there in Genesis, further along, you will find that one of the reasons why he institutes government, in in particular the uh, taking of life or capital punishment, Gives the reason for it. Because man was made in God's image. And God has a particular interest in protecting that which looks like him, if you will. However defaced by the fall, God still has interest 
in his created manhood, if you will. That's just a, that's something very important to recognize. And so anyway, they're crooked, but also he uses the word perverse. Perverse. This is another word in connection with the world. You know, one thing we have to realize as Christians, and this, this goes back to that text in Deuteronomy. It's characteristic of God's people. God never called on his people in Israel to change his neighbor's. That's God's work. If God so changes the neighbors of the world, that's his work. We're to present the truth. We're to be a shining light uh, to the evidence of God. But God called us out of the world to be who we are by grace. We stand in contrast to the world. We don't walk with the world. Why? Because the world is crooked. God made us right in grace, by grace. The world is perverted. God's people are no longer perverted by nature. But they're correct. God sets a man in his right mind. There are times when, just like that little slave girl who was possessed with the devil, was perverted. That's what the work... Here's a text right here. That's what the work of the world does in the spirit of of a divination and among, among other demons, demons, they pervert. Let's look what the Bible says in regards to perversion. We're in Cyprus. Paul's ministry in Cyprus. Here is another case in which we see demonic activity. In a place they had gone through, the Isle of Papos, which is in Cyprus, a city. Must be a beautiful place sitting right there on the Mediterranean. I'm sure it was as beautiful then as it is today. But... It was perverted in terms of the spiritual element. And they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was also named by, known by another name. Because there the deputy of the county, or the country, excuse me, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired, notice this, to hear the word of God. And Elamus, here's the other name, the sorcerer, for so was his name being by interpretation, withstood them. There's the world that's perverted. It's seeking to undermine the truth. So that's what I mean. So we not only have a crooked people or a world in which it surrounds us, in which we are in the midst of, but we also have, in addition to that, this idea of a perversion which seeks, which has a motivation, which has a will, which has desires, which have aims to undermine, distort, distract the truth of God. And so here we have this man who seeks to turn away the deputy from the faith. And then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, sets his eyes on him and said, O fool of subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind. And so he was blind. Immediately there fell on him a midst of darkness. He loves darkness more than light, then have it your way, basically. I love the irony of God's Bible. And so the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at what? Astonished at the doctrine of, Of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a man who desired to hear the things in which Paul preached. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Called out of darkness. Even though they're in the midst of it. The perversion and the crookedness of this old world. When I think about the perversion of this world, I think about... The things that so closely align themselves to the truth. To the truth. I'm, you know, that's why so many of God's people get caught up in the world, in a sense. We're not talking about the physical realm. We're not even talking about the political realm. We're talking about the spiritual realm of God's kingdom. That we live in this way. Well, what else do we have to do in terms of 
Um, I want to get away from that one thought I thought because I was going to lead you in a different path, but I don't want to chase that one. I want to stick to what the truth is. You know, we can talk about the isms of the world till we're blue in the face. We really could. We could define that. But the Bible seeks to present the truth and let all the other stuff just fall by the wayside. It will work out for itself. Whatever it may be that you find as a reason in the world that denies, suppresses, hinders, gets in the way, perverts the truth of God. When God sets you free, you will be free indeed. And those other things won't be so much an obstacle to you anymore. Well, in verse 16, he gives us how exactly we are to shine as lights in this perverted world in which we walk and live. How do we do it? How are we lights in this dark world? We hold forth, verse 16, the word of life. We hold it forth. That word holding forth in the Greek is a word that denotes that something that is already taken took place and that is taking place. It's an imperfect tense, but also an, what they call an aorist tense in the Greek. And it's conveying something that you've already done, that you've held forth to the world, Word of God. And now God's asking you to continue on and not to let that slip. And of course, this is conveyed to the Philippian church. The church that he recalled in his experience that attended to the things that he said along the riverside was baptized and united with the church and became, became blessed in that particular church. And by the way, who made up that church? And this is getting back to that one original point that I kind of slipped in about the Septuagint, that they didn't rely on the Greek, quote-unquote, version of the Old Testament. They had Jews and Gentiles in that early church. What did the Jews do? They read Hebrew. They understood the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament text. They were able to explain to these Gentiles what the Bible taught in terms of the Old Testament. But you can find in the New Testament that when the Apostle Paul and others of the Apostles, when they addressed the church, they wrote letters. Acts chapter 15, they wrote letters. And they determined, they wrote, they wrote down on papyrus exactly what the Gentiles should do to avoid fornication, to avoid meat sacrificed to idols, and this kind of thing. They wrote down. They didn't need a Greek version. They, in other words, the apostles just didn't go to the Gentiles and say, I want you to read the, the Septuagint. Okay? And that, I just wanted to slip that in a little bit because there's a lot in the Bible that is conveyed. The early church had both Jews and Gentiles, and there was a method that God's wonderful design in this new church of the New Testament, in its infant stage, as it was like a tugboat in a harbor, if you will, being, being manipulated by these, these things that God produced. It was the Jews who were consistently writing and rewriting the words. The Jews, the apostles were all Jews. And they were writing down because they were, they were educated. They were able, educated, relatively speaking. I mean, you had fishermen, right? But anyway, this idea is that we hold forth. We hold forth to the word of life. Now, I want to convey here two things. Number one, it is the truth, the gospel truth. But more importantly, the idea here really is Christ. We hold on to Jesus. And then you, there's an extension to that that we find elsewhere in the scriptures. We hold on to Christ and his words. You can't separate the two. You can't have one without the other, in other words, like you can today in much of modern evangelicalism. Okay, They have a Jesus, but they don't have his words. The church that was driven in Revelation into the wilderness, they had Jesus, commandments of God, and his testimonies that preserved him while they were in the wilderness. That's what kept the church from the world, the wilderness, the crookedness, the perversion. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. The truth of God will preserve you. The Bible truth will keep you. Holding forth the word of life. But in terms of Jesus himself, if you read further on in this particular chapter, you can see what he means. Because he's relying 
on the Christ of the Bible to guide him. He said in a couple of different places, verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. He says in verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. What's he doing? He's holding on. He's holding on to the word of life. That word word literally in the Greek is the logos, the same word who was in the beginning with God, who was God. They didn't have the completeness of the Bible that we have today. And so Paul says, hold on to Christ. Hold on to what you've learned of that man, the incarnate God who suffered on your behalf, who died on the cross. Hold on to Him, the gospel truth, that He is alive, resurrected from the dead, and He's seated at the right hand of all majesty, making intercession for you. Hold on to Him. Because you don't know when God will call on you to be a light in this world. It may be that God will call you for a particular purpose. To shine in that particular way. We're all called of God to shine in our unique little compartment of life in which God has given us. Whether we're parents, grandparents, storekeepers, business people, private citizens, whatever. Wherever we are, God says that we are the light. This is what Brother Chuck mentioned and alluded to. That we we are lights in the world. God will have you to be a light. In other words, He didn't call you to some monotheism where you kind of hibernate and kind of hide. And I, quite frankly, uh, I like that, you know. I kind of like that because there's no problems. Uh, nobody's going to be scoffing at me. I'm not going to be the object of ridicule. I don't have to worry about things that other people worry about when they're really out in the front, okay? I kind of, I'm in the background, so to speak. Maybe that's where God calls me to be. Kind of like in my own little cave. But that's not it. You see, God will have his people to shine forth as lights. And there may be a purpose in your life that you're running from, that God demands of you, that you be a light. How many have ever heard of a man by the name of Henry? I've never heard it pronounced, so I'm just making a good guess. Gorecki. Why this man lived in the 1940s. He ceased to be. But he was a very prominent figure at a certain point in his life. Up to a certain point, all he was known was a Lutheran chaplain. But he was a good man, devoted to the gospel of Christ. Wherever he was, he was in in the ministry. Born in Missouri. You can read about him online. I've learned about him just recently. An amazing man. Because he was called to be such a light in his day. Now, we hear a lot about Nazism today, and quite frankly, in a bad light, because the media, who's perverted, likes to pervert the ways of truth, are always using ways in which they can do that. Just recently, uh, they used the phrase, uh, the breaking of glass, in terms of uh, our president, who merely, under the constitutional powers that he has, fired or forced the resignation of his attorney general. This is within his rights. But the media came out because they distort the truth and say it's a breaking of glass moment. It's a breaking of glass moment. Eighty years to the day on Friday night, the Nazis went through Germany breaking glass. Pulling people out from the stores in which they worked. Many of the men were sent to concentration camps along with their women, too. Many Jews who couldn't withstand it committed suicide all over Germany. It was called Kristallnacht, or the breaking of glass. The media is filled with distortion and lies to convey things that are absolutely wrong. In that same time period, Henry Gerlich, Gerlich, if you will, got to see it in my eyes in order to properly pronounce, pronounce it, was a chaplain. He joined the army. The chaplain. Now, he was an older fellow. His own two sons were in the war. They were severely injured, but they survived. And at the end of the war, he's ready to go home. He hadn't seen his wife in two years. It's about time to reunite with his family. But his commanding officer, while he was in Munich, 
Ask him for one more mission. I want you to be a chaplain to the Nazi killers, the criminals, at Nuremberg. There was a trial going on, if you remember, and some of the most notorious criminals of the Nazi Third Reich were set on stage, if you will, judged for their crimes against humanity. Did you know the word genocide was a word coined by one of the justices, judges of the Nuremberg trials? This man, this particular man, was called by God in his particular time to shine forth his lights when he was asked to be a chaplain before those heinous criminals that were ultimately guilty and eventually hung until dead by the neck. One of them committed suicide, or more than one. Actually, the biggest notorious criminals of the Nazi party did take their life. Hitler was one, committed suicide, among Himmler and Hess, among others. But anyway... There was one in particular. See, that what he did for a whole year, he had a church service every Sunday. And he invited those, I think there were seven or ten of them, I don't know all of them. Goer was one. Oh, I was thinking of Goebbels a little while ago, but anyway, he took his own life. He didn't go her before he was hung, so he, he took the, uh, the, uh, the easy way out, if you will. He bid on a, a cyanide tablet, but... The thing that calls my mind to that is how this man struggled at first as a chaplain to take the gospel to these criminals. And you can imagine the publicity of that, you know, and how people would, at that particular era, we, we find it distasteful today, but in particular in that era, how difficult it must have been for him to say, yeah, I can take this on. How difficult it must have been for him. And it certainly was, not only before, but eventually he did take it. And after that experience, the rest of his life, he had to live up to that. But he did so in answering the call of God to minister the gospel among even the worst of criminals. And yet, even in that particular situation, you had one, among others, but one that really showed forth and demonstrated a major change in his life. And that one was a very notorious criminal by the name of Kittel. And word has it, as he entered, walked up the 13 steps to the flight where he was to be hung after having been found guilty, that he prayed. And this was typical of the last year, having spent time with his chaplain, he prayed for the mercy of God, that God would be his propitiation, and that God would have had died for his sins as well. Paul said, I am a chief of sinners. I don't know how you can uh, surpass the sins of the Nazi war criminals, but even that sin, however heinous it is to us, distasteful to us, is equally hateful and despised by God Almighty, who hates all workers of iniquity. But even that sin could have, if God so chose, been remitted by the precious blood, because the blood of Christ, the powerful blood of Christ, can cleanse any sin so chosen by God. If Christ was the uh, surety of whoever so chose from before the foundation of the world, if God redeemed His people from sin, no matter who they were, his blood is sufficient to cover their sins. That's what I'm saying. How immeasurable. What's the Bible say? God so loved the world. That little word so is a word that we can't define that is used to convey how big God's love is. Amen. Lord bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, or in your favorite podcast application.